Welcome in to the 48 Minutes Podcast by Believe, presented by Bet Online. I'm Ross Geiger, joined alongside Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media and World B, Michael Freer. This is episode number 45, the Spida episode. That's right, Mr. 71 himself, Donovan Mitchell, who dropped 71 points earlier this season against the Chicago Bulls on January 2nd. Back when World B was distraught about the Knicks season, only to eventually see his team defeat Mitchell and the Cavs come playoff time. So uh, quite a, a, a change in scenery and in, in the times there, wouldn't you say, World B? Well, you, you really got to pick a better thing to say than this time <laughs> distraught over the Knicks. That could have been pick a month. But uh, yeah. yeah, he was, uh, you know, when he went for the 71, you started thinking about, geez, what the backcourt could have been with uh, Jalen and, and Mitchell, but I'd say it worked out all right for this season. I, I would say so myself. And uh, before we get to our opening tips here tonight, just a special reminder that Bet Online is your number one source for all your basketball info, stats, news, and scores. Get the latest odds and lines and the latest matchup reports for this year's NBA playoffs. Bet Online is your sports intel Headquarters this season as we have you covered for all your insider sports wagering needs from basketball, MLB, NHL hockey, golf to UFC and boxing. The fastest and easiest way to get your betting inflow, including live betting options in your favorite casino and card games available to play right from your own home. Get in on the action today, so head to the website or use your mobile device to join and be sure to use our promo code BELIEVE, that is B. L E A V to receive your 50% bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. And Bruce, I'm going to start with you for tonight's opening tip. You know, guys, the Celtics used to have this player that could come off the bench, play a physical game, and he was the leading scorer for Boston in their game seven win over Milwaukee last season. Oh, wait, they still have him. Fellow <laughs> by the name of Grant Williams used to play a lot. Now the last time we saw him was on the side of a milk carton. If Joe Missoula has any feel at all for this team, he needs to dust off G. Will and put him in the game. He will play physical, and he will battle guys like Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, and Caleb Martin. And his legs should be fresh. He's played only nine games in the last month. He's 24, and he's played in 55 playoff games. His physical style sometimes costs the team during regular season games, but... The refs let him play in the postseason a bit more. So even if he just uses his fouls to soften up opponents, isn't that better than withholding a valuable resource from being used? Kind of like not using timeouts. I will know that Joe Missoula is growing in the job if he gives Grant Williams some minutes in game two. And if he doesn't, I can only scratch my head and wonder what the f- couldn't agree more with that, Bruce, and I'm glad you stopped yourself there and resisted. But uh, I was wondering the same thing after watching game one. Where was Grant Williams to be seen? World B? Thank you, Ross. Now, I understand no one should ever feel sorry for Michael Jordan. And a lot of the mess <laughs> that exists with his current edition of the Hornets was created by MJ. But holy cow, can this franchise catch a break? <laughs> In 2011-2012, the Hornets finished with the worst record in NBA history, winning just seven games. But the light at the end of the tunnel was because they had the best shot at the number one pick in that summer's draft and the franchise named Anthony Davis. 
So what was Charlotte's reward for having the worst record in NBA history? Michael Cade Gilchrist. <laughs> this season, although not the worst team in the league, the Hornets still struggled, but caught some lucky bounces of the ping pong balls at the draft lottery and were left as one of the two remaining teams battling for the number one pick in this summer's draft, along with the Spurs. You know how the rest played out. We'll look past the fact that Charlotte ended up with the number two pick in the lottery the year Shaquille O'Neal and Dwight Howard went number one, since Jordan wasn't a part of the Hornets at that point. It appears the Hornets will have a much better choice at number two than they had in 2012 when MKG was viewed as the second best prospect. I always liked Kate Gilchrist a little more than uh, others did, but in any case, he was never AD. The Hornets franchise has only made three playoff appearances since returning to the NBA in 2004-2005. They've had one winning season in the last seven. They do have one of the league's premier bright young players in LaMelo Ball. Now they just need a little bit of luck at draft time. Yeah, I mean, that was tough going for Hornets fans there, but, you know, they do have some good opportunities at number two, which I will be discussing later on and also have some options there. As for my opening tip, uh, the Wemby sweepstakes is over, as you alluded to there will be. He is headed to San Antonio, which is not only what my hope was, but my prediction, as I stated on Tuesday's podcast. Now, growing up a Suns fan, you might be wondering why I'd hope he'd end up with the Spurs of all teams. Well, when it comes to a phenom like Wemby, I want him in the best organization slash situation possible. And I want to ensure Wemby and NBA fans alike both have the best chance to see him reach his maximum potential. As a true believer that where a player gets drafted matters and can ultimately affect their overall futures, I think San Antonio is just perfect, especially considering the other franchise options that finish in the top four of the lottery. Sorry, there will be. But I'm very excited to see how San Antonio plans to handle their offseason from here. And if I'm them, I'd actively work on signing seasoned veterans with a good history of being leaders and role models while also possessing the complementary skills for Wemby's game. And I would hold off on any spending any of that major big money that they do have until a year or two. Let Wemby establish himself as the guy, which will surely come with his bumps and bruises initially, but hold off on being too aggressive too early, especially since this free agent class is far from great. In three years, KD will have declined. LeBron should be declining. AD likely declining. And Curry will likely be slowing down a bit too. And lastly, what's truly about to be epic is the in-division rivalry between the San Antonio Spurs and Oklahoma City Thunder. Chet Holgram versus Wembamyama, amongst the many other great, great talented stars that will be facing off in that matchup. I certainly cannot wait for that. And with that, let's get right into our first quarter as we just finished watching the Los Angeles Lakers fall yet again to the Denver Nuggets on the road. Nuggets winning 108-103. Bruce, I'll start with you. What what are your initial reactions after uh, watching game two? Well, you know, in the first game, you know, the Joker toyed with the Lakers front line, including Anthony Davis, until he didn't. Uh, He filled up the box score in game one in the first half. Uh, Then L.A. appeared to find a better way to guard him, and they thought they really had something going into game two. Well, what they had going into game two was a slightly less statistically dominant Joker, uh, but he still managed, uh, let's see, 
Um, 23 points, 17 rebounds, and 12 assists. Um, there's no stopping Joker. Uh, and really, everything that happened in this game tonight, and there were a lot of good things that happened for Denver. I think they really kind of wore L.A. down in the second half. Um, but it all begins and ends with uh, Nikola Jokic. And, um, you know, nobody's had an answer for him in the number of years now. Will be what you see. Uh, I saw this as an opportunity the Lakers let get away. Uh, we talked about in the last series with the Suns playing Denver, how important it was for Phoenix to get one of these first two games in Denver of that series in order to uh, – they need to get at least one to try and win this series. And the further it went, the worse the chances were for Phoenix. Well, the same applies to the Lakers, and they had a golden opportunity in this game. They really outplayed – for me, they outplayed Denver for so much of this game – and in the end, it just – they got next to nothing from AD when they needed it. And LeBron James, for his greatness in 40-plus you know, 40 minutes again, and he's his great all-around game. I mean, four steals, a couple of blocks. He really had to guard Joker on occasion. It was really something else. But 0 for 6 from – somebody's got to get into LeBron James. I know it's untouchable. You're not allowed to, you know, speak to LeBron this way. But somebody's got to get in his face and say – you can't shoot the threes. You're not doing it. He's terrible in the three points. He is the worst shooter in the playoffs. He is the best shooter from two-point range and the worst shooter from three-point range. That's not just a statement. That's a fact. Those are the numbers. By numbers, by statistics, he's the best at inside three-point range. He is the worst outside three-point range. 0 for 6 tonight. Now, D'Angelo Russell didn't help any. 1 for 5. Yeah. But LeBron's your guy. LeBron is your meal taken along with AD. And in the end, you got 40 points out of him, where Jamal Murray got 37 all by himself. Yeah, I certainly question LeBron James and taking the six threes. I mean, how much can that be, you know, back to just kind of his age? I mean, not just the altitude, but having to kind of hold back some of this energy to be able to play 40 minutes like he did here tonight in game two. So I do see maybe him settling for some shots to – kind of obviously retain some of that energy he's going to know he's going to need later. But I, I'm in full agreement. Someone's got to talk to him. I think on that Lakers staff, that would be Phil Handy, who's worked with him for quite some time now. Uh, but certainly Anthony Davis didn't help. Seven points in that first half ended with a Embiid-like game seven stat line, 4-15 from the field, 18 points. Really didn't have much going on early in this game and you know he did pick it up a little bit in the uh, second half but not as much as Jamal Murray did I mean Murray was hot from three made some big shots even a big dagger on uh, Anthony Davis there uh, late in the fourth at the top of the key Um, my question to you Bruce is you know moving forward as this series shifts to LA uh, are there any adjustments that you think the Lakers can make or do you think that you know, they just got to roll out the same type of strategy and hope to get a better game from AD. I don't know that I see a whole lot left for them to do. I mean, look, with LeBron and AD playing 40 minutes plus each in both of these two Denver games, I totally agree with what you said a moment ago about LeBron. I mean, as as much of a force of nature as that guy is, he can't just go barreling to the hoop every single time. I mean, he'll be... He'll be, you know, 
totally exhausted. He needs to take some of those threes just to give himself a little bit of a breather from, from going inside. I mean, look, he smoked a few layups tonight that he never misses. He had, as Michael mentioned a few minutes ago, that ridiculous going in for the uncontested dunk and the ball just slipped out of his hands. I mean, these are very uncharacteristic type things for LeBron James. I mean, he's Superman, right? I mean, this doesn't happen to Superman, but Superman playing 40 minutes back to back in the altitude, uh, you know, makes, you know, that, that, that's kryptonite almost as far as adjustments. I think, look, they got an incredible first half out of Rui Hachimura tonight. And then in the second half, he was just kind of there. I mean, you know, he was, he was seven for seven at halftime. He had 17 points and I think he finished up like eight for 10. So he only shot it three times in the second half. Uh, So maybe that's an adjustment they need, you know, to say, look, you know, you know, when, when, when you're, you know, killing it like you did in the first half, keep shooting it, you know, keep going. Um, And playing at home is going to make a big difference for LA. I just think that's an amazing crowd. Uh, They're not going to be in the altitude. 40 minutes at home is going to be a lot different than 40 minutes on the road for, for AD and LeBron. So I totally expect them to win game three uh, when they get, uh, when they get home on Saturday. Um, but beyond that, I don't know. I mean, look, it, it's not like we should be surprised by the fact that Denver's playing excellent ball. I mean, I talked, uh, I, I noticed at halftime, the rebounds were even. They were 23-23 at halftime. They ended up 49-40. So LA out-rebounded Denver in the second half, or Denver rebounded LA in the second half by nine. All right, big, big margin. And again, I think it all kind of plays into the whole Denver's a little younger. They're a little deeper. They're used to the altitude. They wore LA down. And I think home cooking is the best adjustment LA can hope for. I really think it was, uh, there's a lot of positives for LA tonight. Uh, you know, in this series, actually, I mean, they haven't been, this is a much different feel than what Phoenix provided uh, opposition to the Nuggets. Uh, you got, you got the feeling in that series that, Phoenix was just overmatched at times. I know they came back and won a couple of times in in uh, Phoenix at home, but up in Denver, they you know they didn't. You never got to feel. I never got to feel that they were. I I got the feeling they were over, overmatched. I haven't had that feeling with the Lakers in these first two games. They haven't played well all the time, and Denver is the best team in the West. They should they should be you know winning these games. But you hold the top offensive team in in the NBA in the playoffs. At least, to 108 points on their home court, and they need a huge fourth quarter to do it. Uh, there's a positive to what the Lakers did. They have, like Bruce said, are you really going to get two really blown layups and a missed dunk out of out of uh, LeBron? Think of LeBron's night if those go in. Those are easy shots. Think of his night. He was 9 of 13 from two-point range with three missed chippies. Yeah, I mean that's good point. That just doesn't happen. Uh, there's a lot of positive. Austin Reeves was excellent again. I agree. Hachimura was really something special, taking it to the hole, taking it right at him. And you can tell this is really getting <laughs> Mike Malone. He is begging his team in timeouts to get up the energy. Get you match the energy of the Lakers. That shouldn't happen with a team at home up a game, but. Uh, you know, they picked it up. They, they listened to their coach. In the fourth quarter, they absolutely dominated, and they won a humongous spurt to start the fourth and really never looked back, even though L.A. tried to make it close at the end. 
You know, Bruce, you mentioned that rebounding margin. One thing that does stand out here in the box score that definitely needs to be fixed here for the Lakers is the Lakers only had four offensive rebounds the entire game. And we mentioned how much they struggled from the outside, including LeBron James and D'Angelo Russell. So there are some longer rebound potentials there. Lakers had four offensive rebounds on the night as a whole. Nikola Jokic had four offensive rebounds himself, not to mention everyone else kind of chipping in for the Nuggets on the offensive glass. So they've got to do a better job being active on that glass. We talked about the athleticism that Anthony Davis has. That's going to be more his responsibility to try to keep balls alive on the offensive end of the floor. And he's got to do a much better job trying to at least bat those balls out for second chance opportunities. But uh, totally agree. I think this could uh, certainly shift into the Lakers' favor as they head back to the Crypto.com arena. As you for know, one, our uh, se- one guy, I just I just want to make one point. Uh, one one sure. guy, uh, Bruce Brown has been excellent in both of these games. Yes, yep. Here's a guy who you know. There's always a guy in the in the in a playoff series that overachieves for the team that wins, and I think Bruce Brown has been that guy. I mean, he comes off the bench. Every time he's come into a game this year, whether it was in Brooklyn or wherever he was, he is like instant energy off the bench. He just like punches up the enthusiasm and the energy level on his team. And I think it's uh, got a really sort of a a ripple effect on his teammates. So big ups to him. And again, we only briefly mentioned Jamal Murray. At halftime, he was three for 13. He ended the game 11 for 24, which means he was 8 for 11 in the second half. Big buckets all over the place. And uh, I don't know that L.A. has anybody that's going to be able to stop him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of to your credit here, Bruce, you you talked about Bruce Brown and the spark he brings off the bench, which leads us right into the second quarter, because couldn't that be Grant Williams for the Celtics providing that same kind of spark uh, for this Boston team? And, uh, you know, For the second quarter, of course, uh, Jimmy Butler continues his tear, taking game one in Boston. Miami has now won every game one on the road during the playoffs. And uh, I believe they've been, they're the first team to do that since World B's 99 Knicks to go ahead and do that. So, going to start with you, World B, on this one. Uh, What were your takeaways from the Heat pulling off the upset uh, at TD Garden on Wednesday night? Uh, just a terrific offensive performance. What we saw in the first round against the Bucks, you, you know, we talked about before before the uh, series. We didn't know which Miami Heat team you were going to get offensively. Were you going to get the the team that actually absolutely shredded the best defense in the league in Milwaukee, or are you going to get the team that couldn't hit you know fifty percent in effective field goal percentage? And most of that series against the Knicks, they just struggled terribly offensively. Well, we saw, we got an answer in game one. They absolutely were dominating, shooting the ball all over the place, not just from three-point range where they shot over 50%, th- you know, 16 of 31, which is ridiculous for anybody. But for a team that was bottom five in three-point shooting, they go ahead and do it again just like they did in the first round. But they were like 10 of 13 or something from mid-range. That's huge for, uh, for this team because they were not that good a mid-range shooting team either which explains why they had to end up in the playing game, why their offense was so lousy most of the season, uh, because their offense, you know, they just couldn't win games with that offense. But, uh, yeah, my takeaway was another outstanding effort from uh, from their offense. I mean, 54% against one of the best defenses in the league in their building. Uh, you really can't uh, 
ask for more. I'll give you this real uh, quick stat before uh, yeah, I'm sure Bruce had plenty to talk about with the C's there. Uh, in the regular season, Miami had eight games where they, their effective field goal percentage, which takes three-pointers into account, when it was 60% or more, eight out of 82 games. In the postseason, in 12 postseason games, they've already done this four times. So they're really shooting the lights out like we haven't seen during the season at, at really at any point. Bruce, you know, how are the Sunday, Celtics going to bounce back? Well, I just want to I just want to talk about the fact that on Sunday, Boston won game seven over Philadelphia with a 23-point margin in the third quarter. Okay. On Wednesday, Miami won game one with a 21-point margin in the third quarter. Boston seems to play with a sense of entitlement that they have not earned. Miami played with a sense of desperation and are willing to earn it on every possession. Can it be any simpler? I mean, going into this series, I talked about how all during the season when these teams played each other, turnovers were a big problem for Boston. Miami, you know, forced a bunch. Well, as expected, Boston's turnovers hurt them in uh, game one. The total number of turnovers were close. Boston had 15, Miami had 12. But the timing of Boston's turnovers late in the game absolutely crushed them. In the fourth quarter at the 339 mark, they're trailing by five. Al Horford gets a pass stolen by Butler. 40 seconds later, Butler stole a pass from Jason Tatum. And after Caleb Martin, three, made it a seven-point game, 13 seconds later, Tatum traveled. 30 seconds later, still trailing by seven, Tatum traveled again. And Butler then hit from downtown for a 10-point lead ball game. Okay? This is what I'm saying. Miami will earn everything they get because they're relentless, they're grinders, they play every possession like it means something. Boston took so many possessions off in game one that, you know, it was only because they had so much more talent than Miami that they were even able to be in that game the way they played. So, and I also feel like in the first half, you know, everyone's talking about how they shot fewer threes than they normally do, which is true. But here's what I think happened. I think Boston had that took themselves out of their normal rhythm in the first half because they did so well in the paint. Robert Williams was pounding the offensive glass early and the Celtics scored an unusually large number of points in the paint. So I think what happened was they said, oh, this is working. They, so they kept going inside too often the rest of the game. They got away from their normal style of shooting a lot of threes and voila. I mean, you know, is it, did Eric Spolstra and his defense kind of trick them into it? Maybe there was some of that. But again, I just think, you know, with Boston, you know, having a, a coach that maybe isn't quite ready for the moment, you know, they needed to get their cages rattled and said, okay, great. You know, you did well in the paint, but this is not who we are. We're a three-point shooting team, and we need to get back to what we're doing. And they did it for a minute in the second quarter. And then they kind of, you know, took their foot off the gas. And um, in the third quarter, I mean, I just wanted to pull out the hair, whatever hair I have left at that point. It was just so, so frustrating. I really like what you said there, Bruce, because I think it is so true about the theme of this series. You've got one team in the Miami Heat that are proving every game why they should be there and, and want to be there. And they want to continue to prove people wrong. And you got the other team that, 
is already proven and feel like, oh, well, this is where we're supposed to be. And they're a little bit more comfortable. They got to get out of that uncomfortability because this team and in the Miami Heat is coming for them. They're going to speed you up. They're going to force turnovers. They, they love sloppy games, as I continue to say. And as we said last show as well, this this Celtics team all season has been one that likes to shoot themselves in the foot. They did that in that third quarter, as you just broke down to it for us here. And uh, that's going to continue. So, they, I mean, that hopefully won't continue, but it's going to be that continuous pressure from the Miami Heat to force Boston to to kind of get into those bad habits. And they've got to snap out of that real quick. Hopefully this was the wake-up call that the Celtics needed and can move on and learn from. You know, I want to talk a little bit about – I'm sorry, World, and I'll make this pretty quick. I want to talk a little bit about Jimmy Butler, okay? And, again, I'm not going to say what everybody else is saying about Jimmy Butler because it's obvious. I mean, the guy's just a big-time baller, and when the moment matters the most, he seems to show up. But he's come so far as a leader. In his final year with the Bulls back in 2016-17, I remember – he and Rajon Rondo, who was his teammate in Chicago at the time, they really got into it with each other because Jimmy seemed to place the blame uh, for some of the team's shortcomings on his younger teammates. And Rondo was like, no, no, no. He defended them from Jimmy. Okay. But now Jimmy is the kind of leader on the floor that coaches love. He empowers his teammates. He wants them to shoot. He lifts them all up. He's, he's, you know, evolved as a leader in a significant way. And it's funny. I know that, Ross, you're friends with Doug McDermott, and at some point you said Doug was going to join us on this show. Doug was on that team back that season. So I'm really looking forward to when he comes on because I want us to ask him, you know, how was what were Jimmy leadership skills like then when you were one of his, like you were a second-year player with him that year? versus what they are now. And I'm sure he'll have something very thoughtful to say about how Jimmy's evolved uh, will be. On the other hand, with the Celtics, uh, we can talk about coaching. We can talk about the overmatch, the gap between uh, Spolster and Missoula, all we want. The stars for the Celtics have to play better. Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Al Horford combined with three for 14 from three-point range. It's just not going to get it done. With that, with that team, I mean, Bruce mentioned how, you know, they were successful inside. They had 62 pain points, which is way uh, out of the norm for the Celtics. Their worst game in the first round in terms of fewest percentage of field goal attempts coming from threes came against the Hawks, came in game one. When the second round the, against the Sixers, the lowest percentage of field goal attempts that were threes came in game one. And I would suspect this percentage here, which is about 35% of their field goal attempt for threes, will end up being the lowest percentage of field goal. You know, the Celtics are just eight and six in this postseason for all that success and for being in the finals. They're just eight and six. They've been pushed every step of the way, even that Hawks series. They, you know, they were the better team, obviously. We thought they were the better team against Philly, but they've been pushed every step of the way. You kind of lose track of it with the blowout in game seven. But yeah, you know, they're not exactly you know doing it like the Nuggets are doing on the other end. Yep. You know, I'm and, wondering. Uh, I'm sorry, Russ. You're good. You go ahead. Go for it. Okay. No, I want to. Yeah, go for it. All right. 
What happened to Robert Williams third after halftime in game one? When, you know, he was a holy terror in the first half. But then the heat made him disappear. How did they do that? And when he did, you mentioned Grant Williams, and I mentioned him at the very top of the show. That's when Grant Williams needed to come into this game, okay? When Robert Williams was sort of, you know, just kind of wandering around out there looking a bit lost. Last year, when these guys played in the conference finals, all right, Grant Williams played all seven games. He averaged 30 minutes a game in that series, okay? Almost nine points, okay? Four rebounds, almost 39% on threes, and he was money at the foul line. He was 20 out of 23. That's like 88%. He can be physical. He makes opponents feel him, which nobody on the Celtics really does. He's one of the few, you know? Um, he will battle these guys like Bam and Butler and Caleb Mark. I mean, it's mind-boggling to me, you know, if he's not the second or at the very worst, the third guy off the bench in game two, then I, I think Joe Missoula is really uh, worse than than we even thought. And then I want to say one more thing, and I'm going to be done talking because I know I'm hogging <laughs> the conversation here. Reggie Miller said something completely silly last night about Jimmy Butler. Okay, with 17 seconds left and Miami up by six with the ball, Butler was fouled. He went to the free throw line for his ninth and 10th attempts of the game. And Reggie made it into this big deal. Oh, see, there it is. Miami always wins when Butler takes 10 free throw attempts. Dude, they were going to win if he only took eight. That was stupid. And (laughs) it's like, you know, why'd you even bother with that? Anyway, rant off. Yeah. Well, before we head into the break here, I want to pose a wild and maybe stupid question because I know it is is early, but I do want to get your thoughts on this, both of you guys real quickly. If the Heat beat the Celtics and become the Eastern Conference champs and end up losing a close one in Game 7 of the NBA Finals, is there any chance Jimmy Butler could win Finals MVP without actually winning the Finals? Like, Do you think that would be given any thought? I, I, I'm generally curious, and I think if anyone has an argument, it could be Jimmy. It happened once in 1969. Jerry West for the Lakers was the finals MVP, even though they lost in seven games. I don't think so, because I, I think if that was going to happen after that, LeBron James would have probably won it one of the years that they lost in the finals because Good point. he was always the most valuable player in all of those series, even when his team didn't win. World V, what do you think? Uh, I don't see it happening anymore. Uh, I think you you got to put up a kind of series like Jerry West did. Anybody go back and look at the numbers that he put up in that series? I don't think there was any argument on the Celtics that he was the uh, best player in the in the finals that year. Uh, yeah, it would. I mean, Jimmy Butler not only has he been the best player in this. Uh, Playoffs, you know, you could make a case for Joker, I suppose, but uh, he's certainly been the most valuable. And I don't know if anybody has elevated their reputation world in the you know league standing than Jimmy Butler in this postseason. I mean, from the very first series to uh, fifty six against the Bucks. I mean, you know, who does that? No, against the best defense in the league, nobody does that. And and uh, so he, he's having a great run. And everything Bruce said about them is absolutely right. They're playing. They began this tournament 
uh, this playoffs on, in a like a team with a desperate mode, and they've never really let let go of that. They haven't always played great. They haven't always played, been the best team in the game, but the the effort has never um, wavered. Well, thanks for hearing me out, guys. I knew you guys would have some good answers there for me. But uh, we've gone we've gone ahead and reached that halftime buzzer, so we'll take a quick break and come back with you for the second half. And we're back with the start of the third quarter, and let's discuss this coaching carousel as the list grows bigger with Doc Rivers out in Philadelphia. Uh, Bruce, I'll start with you. Were you surprised to see Doc be shown the door? Not surprised, but a little bit disappointed. I mean, I'm a big Doc Rivers fan. I've always, you know, liked him. I mean, look, he, uh, but, you know, Philadelphia is a tough city to work in, you know, and um, with what's going on there with that team right now. And again, we're going to talk a little bit more about that, I think, in our final quarter. Um Philadelphia, I think, could be headed for a fall next season. I mean, I don't know who they're going to bring in that's better than Doc Rivers, but uh, they have issues on that team, and, and it's not only Doc Rivers. And World B, do you have any uh, names that come to mind for uh, who you think would fit Philly right now? Well, I'm, I'm somebody who thinks Monty Williams would fit anywhere. So if he, if he wants, yeah. although if I'm Monty Williams, why in the world do I want to deal with that headache? I just got relieved of of a, of a headache situation in Phoenix. And I have much better players, I think overall top to bottom than I do in uh, Philly. So, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily want to deal with that, if I, especially if I have a shot at say Milwaukee, uh, yeah. which I would think, I think he'd be great in Milwaukee uh, command respect, a different voice. And he's got a ton of talent there still that, uh, well, it may be aging and, you know, with Drew Holiday and, and stuff and Brooke Lopez, I think, you know, they they more than have enough to go for, make another run. So I don't know. Uh, I'm not of the same opinion of Doc Rivers as a coach as Bruce is. Uh, I think the, he's got the title and for that, he, uh, he you're not taking that back. But he also has a lot of th- series leads, 3-2 and 3-1, that uh, he has to uh, answer for in his career. So I don't know where he's going to end up, but that, that Philly situation is not, is not a fun situation right now with all the uncertainty going on. Yeah. You know what what I thought, you know what I, you know what I could see Monty Williams doing Russ, correct me if I'm wrong. He's getting paid for what, two or three more years from Phoenix. I think it's two years. Yep. Okay. So I could really see him, taking some time off, talking to his buddy Greg Popovich down in San Antonio because he has close ties to that organization. He played there and, you know, he was, you know, he was he was part of that organization. I know Pop wants to coach Victor, okay, but how long does Pop really want to do that, you know? Could he coach Victor for a year or two and then Monty, after taking a couple years off, you know, working on his golf game, whatever – come and take that job. I think that might be an outstanding place for him to end up because he's going to get paid anyway. I mean, if it's, if you think about it, you can get paid a ton of money to not work or you can get paid a ton of money to work. it's like, well, you know, I think he'll at least take one year. We'll see if he does anything beyond that. 
Well, I'm with World B here. I think it's worth working if you get a job like the Milwaukee Bucks. I think the Milwaukee Bucks offer you the job. You go, all right, I'll double dip and have two salaries because I'm given this talented team that's already meshed and you know ha- has the solid core that I need to be successful. But I'm with you. I think obviously the Spurs would be another uh, uh, good opportunity down the road for Monty Williams. The only thing he's got to obviously watch and ask Pop, hey, is uh, Wemby anything like DeAndre Ayton? Because if so, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, coaches, it's funny. coaches are a different breed. You know, we all know coaches are – their mindset is a lot different. We're all – you know, I, I'm with Bruno. So, yeah, if I get a chance to take a couple years off to not coach after dealing with all that, I'm going to do it. Coaches have a different mindset about that about this stuff they are they're ultra competitive and they're uh they love to get back into it how many times we see guys out for a long time and then jump back in i mean geez how long was hubie brown out before he came back to memphis all those years ago after just once back in so it's they're they're a uh i'm not going to classify them as a strange breed but they are of a different mindset than uh most of normal society (laughs) you know the money part is not as clear uh in my mind, uh, what you said, Ross, where you say he can double dip. Sometimes when a coach is under contract and takes another job, there is some offset of money there. So he may not necessarily be able to take both salaries. He may have to, the team that fired him will probably pay some of his salary and his new team some. So he won't just automatically, you know, be able to piggyback those things. So again, it may not matter for the reasons both of you guys just said. The guy probably wants to wash the bad taste out of his mouth and come back and start winning some games again too. So, uh, and uh, good luck to Monty. We all love Monty. He's a great guy. And uh, it seems the only guy who ever had a problem with him was DeAndre Ayton. Which leads me to this, Ross. Whoever Phoenix does hire, whoever Phoenix does hire for that job, I would strongly urge ownership to ask that guy, do you want to coach DeAndre Ayton? Because we're keeping him. He was the number one overall pick five years ago. We're not giving up on him yet. They need to hire a coach that wants DeAndre Ayton and then give DeAndre a year in a better situation like that with these two amazing teammates that he has. And, you know, they can fill in the roster with whatever else uh, they, they need. But I think that the next Phoenix Suns coach should be saying, I want this guy. I can unlock his potential and make it real clear that, you know, and and, and I think the Suns should want their coach to feel that way, their new coach. I, I totally agree there. And the most recent rumors coming out now is that the Suns are strongly tied and interested in Tyron Lue of the Los Angeles Clippers. Now, of course, Coach Lue is under contract in L.A. and it, Ports coming out of L.A. as well. We don't want to get rid of this guy. So um, I'd be willing to bet that those rumors are coming from Ty Luce camp wanting out of the L.A. situation, having to deal with Kawhi Leonard's availability or lack thereof. But, you know, the, the, the thing that's very interesting with Tyron Lue is that, you know, maybe we could possibly get a trade. If the Suns are that set on Tyron Lue being the next guy, maybe we could get a trade to, you know, Maybe even one where Chris Paul gets to go back home where his family family lives, return to the L.A. Clippers, offset some of that money, trade Chris Paul for Tyron Lue's services as the Suns coach. And let's face it, Tyron Lue's done a great job developing Zubak. I mean, of course, DeAndre Ayton's leaps and bounds more talented than him all around. But, like, 
even if they got Zubak type production and reliability from DeAndre Ayton, I think the Suns would sign up for that right now. We we've talked about Ayton being a guy if he just rebounded the ball and played tough down low. That's all he really needs to do for Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. Of course, he wants a little bit more piece of that pie, and I think a guy like Tyron Lue would be very open to that. So I think that's why we have that that interest there in the Suns job. And uh, one other one I wanted to throw out real quick before we head on to our fourth quarter is the Toronto Raptors job. I think Mike Budenholzer could be a really good coach there. They've got Pascal Siakam as a foreman that can handle the ball and be a creator. And he could work well with a coach like Budenholzer, who's obviously familiar with the best in the business at creating from the four-man position in Giannis. I mean, do you guys see that kind of uh, connection there of a you know, young, young defensive team? He, he's good with a defensive program. Uh, I, I, I like Budenholzer with Toronto. What do you have to say, World B? I know you're a big uh, fan of the Bucks' defense this past year. Yeah, I'm a, and I'm a, I am uh... – Overall, a fan of Coach Bud. I've mentioned that before. I thought he did a great job with uh, with Atlanta years ago when he was there. When he had players, when he had players, he had the best, some of the best defenses in the league. Coach of the year, got into sixty plus wins. So he, you know, when he has talent on the court, he can really do uh, a job. I don't know how much talent there really is in Toronto, and how much is still going to be there. You hear Fred Van Leet's name mentioned in trade rumors. You you know you hear these things. Uh, I don't know where they're going to go. Uh, you know going forward. Yeah, I think he would be a, a great addition to uh, improve that team. I don't know if there's enough talent to be championship contenders uh, in the immediate. Now we, you know things can change. You give me a few years. You put get somebody to bring in talent. Yeah, maybe I can uh, work with him there, but. Uh, I think I think he could work there. I just don't know how well he would work there. One of his biggest successes in Milwaukee, I believe, was his uh, work with uh, with Brooke Lopez. I mean, he really helped Brooke Lopez transform his game. And he's got a guy in Toronto, Jakob Pertl, another seven foot big, who yep. you know who is a good player. Okay, he could be better. So maybe Bud might be the kind of guy that could help Jakob Pertl sort of reach that next level. And if you do that with a big like Jakob Pertl, you have a chance to, to really, you know, make your team a lot better. Yeah, and there was recently an ESPN analyst that also interviewed for the Toronto coaching position. And Bruce, uh, I know you have some thoughts on that, so I'll let you go ahead and take that over. <laughs> J.J. Redick is sucking up to the players not any player in particular, but the players. Why is why am I saying this? Well, his take on the whole John Morant thing, where he was, you know, he again, he did, you know, I, I will say this. He did say John Morant needs to be significantly punished, blah, blah, blah. But he really kind of had a, a, a velvety sort of way of sort of saying that. Where he was saying, well, he didn't break any laws and this, that, and the other. I think J.J. Redick was basically campaigning for – a lot of jobs with that statement, basically having players on different teams, if they're asked about J.J. Redick, planting that seed in their mind saying, wow, J.J. Redick, I mean, cool dude, you know. Uh, I could yeah. get behind J.J. Redick. I really think that was his motivation. I'm not a mind reader. I don't know J.J. Redick, but that was just how I read that. What do you guys think? Will be? Uh, I really want to be in a room when 
executives for a particular team, be it Toronto, be it somewhere else, are deciding on coaches and find out what the qualifications are for J.J. Redick to be manning my multi-million dollar ball club with all these great players and all this money that I'm investing, and I'm going to give it to a commentator on first take. I'm really going to do that. I mean, that's just what it comes down to. Uh, unless I'm mistaken now, I, I, from what I can remember, he went from player at Duke to the NBA and then to TV. Not a bad yeah. transition all the way through and a solid player. But just being coached by Coach K and some of the other ones doesn't make you qualified to be a coach. Magic Johnson was coached by Pat Riley and it didn't make him a coach for the Lakers for very long. So I want to, I would love to be a fly on the wall in one of these rooms where the GM and the ownership or the president of basketball ops are deciding on their next coach to lead into a championship. And somebody gets up there and says, we can only do it if JJ Reddick is our coach. <laughs> and somebody asks why. And then they go, well, I don't know. <laughs> well, he did do it. He yeah. did do an instructional shooting video about 15 years ago. I don't know if you guys remember. That is that. true. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, and, yeah. and Tommy Mansky did the the big hitting video we used to see on ESPN. Didn't make him a world class Hall of Fame uh, batter. He's not teaching Pete Rose how to hit. Yeah, but it did well, say he was a world class baseball instructor in the video. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I do got to say, I will come to JJ's defense here. I had a chance to work with him in Milwaukee, was very close with him as I uh, handled a lot of uh, his welcoming duties and getting his family settled in in Milwaukee when he was traded at the deadline for Tobias Harris and Deron Lamb and uh, got nothing things to say. He's a straight shooter on and off the basketball court. So one thing I do appreciate him is that he is brutally honest and that could go a long way as a coach. So, uh, think it's just a little early i mean the guy's been an espn analyst for what six months i mean he hasn't been there even that long so i think you know maybe a little bit more time or an assistant coaching job is where he should start out so uh should be interesting sorry, to watch for, that. sorry for sorry for bashing your friend ross i apologize I, oh. I didn't realize you guys were boys oh i mean we're not boys but i i do know him um but Name with that said, but <laughs> let, let's get let's get to our fourth quarter here as it is hot take time. And uh, Bruce, I'll go ahead and start with you. I'm going to give you a name, and then I'll let you just take it from here. Daryl Morey. Why is he so enamored <laughs> of James Harden? Somebody does he have pictures? Is there? Does he want to meet one of the Kardashians and James can fix him up? <laughs> I mean. I don't understand. I mean, James is planning to opt out. He declined his player option for $35.6 million next season. He did Daryl Morey a favor by doing that, if you ask me. But somehow or another, Daryl Morey wants this guy back. I mean, I see this as the early embers of a dumpster fire. And with Harden, he's still a good player. But something has always been missing with him. It's still missing. And did I mention that he declined a $35.6 million player option for next year? I think I, I, I don't have any words, Daryl. I mean, come on, man. Rule B, you've always been a big uh, Harden fan this year, obviously supporting him being 
part of the all-star team, obviously being a big difference maker in Philadelphia wins. What's your take on all this about Maury wanting them back in Philadelphia so bad? Well, first, he's not just enamored with uh, James Harden. He's apparently enamored with Mike D'Antoni still because his name is yep. being rumored about as uh, potentially <laughs> getting the Sixers job. I mean, it worked out so tremendously in uh, in Houston, as you can tell by all the banners that hang since, uh, <laughs> since during their tenure there. So I, I don't get it. Uh, I, I'm starting to wonder why teams are so enamored with Daryl Morley or, or Daryl Morey as far as being, what has he, what has he ultimately brought you? I mean, what does he, what has he brought Houston? He brought him to the brink to a point, And then his guy, James Harden years in Houston couldn't come through at the very you know, moment you need him. You bring that act to Philly, they get to the brink with the Celtics and James Harden lets you down again. Tremendously let you down. It was absolutely a pathetic performance by him in game seven. So what makes you think? I'm with Bruce. I was like, it's fine. But now you ask what the Sixers front offer, the Sixers ownership. What is Aren't you scratching your head? You just going to let him do whatever? Do you were you not around during the Houston years? It was fun, didn't get you anywhere. Hey Ross, isn't yeah. be snark? His snark game is on point tonight. This is the on snarkiest fire. you've ever been. Really, really impressive snark game tonight, World B. Good for you. Well, man. it it helps when the when the Mets take two out of three from the Rays like they did this this week. So uh, it puts me in a better mood. Hey, nice. Daryl well, Morey did achieve one thing in Houston, you know, when he made his very, very appropriate and correct comments about China and Hong Kong, he got the Rockets, who were basically China's most popular team, all but banned from their games being shown in China, uh, which, again, I support him in what he said there. To me, he was absolutely right. Uh, but uh, that's what he got done for Houston. Well, thanks, Bruce. We just lost all our uh, listeners in China now. Thanks to you there. So um, anyway, with your- both of them, <laughs> I, I, didn't, I yeah. didn't think they were on our list. No, I, I'm not sure they are, but maybe after this episode, they will be. So we'll we have got to France, wait and though. see. We do, we have, do France. have France. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we do. A bit, big time fans <laughs> in France, which is awesome. I think with Daryl Morey, just to kind of sum things up, what you get with him is a big science experiment. He's just a, a scientist that comes together with his analytics and puts some wild things together. And yeah, as we're, as will be said, it's a lot of fun, but uh, they're not printing banners. So, uh, I mean, take it for what it is. Uh, but with that, let's go ahead and get to our final thoughts here as we are running a little long here tonight. And uh, Bruce, I'll go ahead and start with you. Thanks Ross and, and world B what separates the good from the great and the overachievers from the underachievers. Well, it's the little things. Some teams can be careless with their passes, while others pass the ball with purpose. Some teams will take an open shot early in the shot clock, while others will move the ball from side to side, make the defense work, and end up with an even better shot. Some teams play with grit and fire, while others play like they're too cool for school. Some players will battle through every screen, while others will go under the screen late in the game when they're tired. Some teams feature an offense where players cut hard without the ball, 
while others spaced the floor with two statues in the corners, waiting for that coveted corner three that sometimes never comes. These are all the little things that separate winners from also-rans. When you watch smart teams play the right way and don't beat themselves, you have to respect them. They delight when they delight their fans and they overachieve. And sometimes they even make the NBA finals, even when the experts say they won't. I'm looking at you, Miami, and you, Boston. Nice job, Coach Bernstein. Obviously, hopefully our listeners will take your words to heart there and take a look at that uh, next time they watch some of these exciting playoff matchups. World B? Well, 2020 hindsight is a indeed a wonderful trait to possess. The trade of Rui Hachimura from the Wizards to the Lakers turned a bad Wizards season into an embarrassment. Lakers GM Rob Polinka received a lot of credit for this deal, along with a few others during the season, to help shape the Lakers to the team we see today. From the Wizards' perspective, however, it's just one more in a series of questionable moves that ultimately caused Tommy Shepard his job as their general manager. Letting Hachimura go to L.A. was justified and some, somewhat understandable, in my, my opinion, because of the fact that Kyle Kuzma was becoming one of the faces of the team, along with Kristaps Porzingis and Bradley Beal. But to give up on a guy who turned around and became a key player off the bench during the Lakers' run to the West Finals, Washington received... Kendrick Nunn, and four second-round draft picks. Considering Nunn averaged all of 14 minutes a game with the Wizards after the trade, it's not out of line to suggest that the four seemingly worthless second-round picks will turn out to provide more value than Nunn. Maybe the Wizards can parlay one of these picks into a deal down the road that reaps some benefits, or perhaps they will use one of these picks and find a diamond-in-the-rough type of player. In the immediate, however, this trade is proven to be as embarrassing for the Wizards as it is fortunate for the Lakers. Well said there will be, and the way I would kind of sum that up is that you said they gave away Rui Hachimura and got none, right? (laughs) Second to none. (laughs) I I had to do it. All right, well. For my, I'm, I'm rewriting for my, my script here so I can do this again. <laughs> All right, we'll retake it. As for my final thought, I actually want to give my initial thoughts to the rest of the lottery. So let's start with Charlotte at two. If I'm Charlotte, I would look to trade the pick. Last thing we need is this Hornets team to draft Brandon Miller. Do you really want to employ Miles Bridges, James Booknight, and Miller? Seems like a bad idea if you ask me. So this team should be looking to collect additional assets or players if a team is wanting to move up to get Scoot Henderson or Miller uh, at number two. For Portland at three, first we had the Dame, CJ, and Young Simon Street three-guard combo. Are we really going to do this song and dance again with Dame Simons and a young Scoot Henderson? I've got major questions there. Is it Dame on the move? Is it time to finally give up and uh, – rebuild with a Scoot Henderson leading the charge with Simons kind of carrying the offense for a few years. Who really knows? But that should be a fun situation to uh, observe from afar. As for Houston at four, I would look to trade the pick, whether that be for established talent or to move a young player on the roster and this pick for for the number two pick with Charlotte. 
I think it'd be very interesting to see Miller join that young nucleus in Houston. They could certainly use a, a playmaking forward like Miller. So um, that would be my suggestion there. And then last, Detroit at five. They finished with the worst record in the NBA this year, ended up getting the fifth pick, and I've got two words for them. I'm sorry. And uh, with that, that will do it for this edition of the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back with you next week to be sure you're up to date in 48 on all things around the association. Have a great weekend, everybody. So long, everyone.